This Parsha podcast is dedicated in honor of a new baby, Ezra Amiel, the new son of our friends Naomi and Matthew Salzberger, and grandson of our dear friends and longtime friends of Torch, Dove, and Ricky Eisner. On behalf of the entire Torch and Parsha podcast family, we wish them a hearty Mazel Tov. May young Ezra Amiel grow up to be someone who makes his parents and his grandparents and the entire Jewish people proud, and of course, makes the Almighty proud. May he become a Tamachacham, a Torah scholar, a Yerei Shemayim, someone who is fearful of the Almighty, and may he witness the arrival of Messiah. May it come speedily in our days. I want to let you all know that on the on one of the other podcast, the Jewish History Podcast. We've revved up the History Podcasts. We took a little bit of a hiatus, and now it's back. Unfortunately, it's back because of the trying times that we're in, the war, of course, in Gaza. But uh, we recorded one episode, then a second, now a third one we recorded last night. I have to say, in my opinion, it's a masterpiece. It's very powerful. It's very evocative though it is very intense, you've been warned. I hope to release it, uh, please God, next week. And I, I kind of forgot how much fun these are to record a Jewish history podcast. But I think it's important for everyone to beef up their knowledge of Jewish history, especially in relation to the Arab-Israeli conflict. This is in the news. Everyone's talking about it. And we, certainly, certainly we, we have to be educated. We have to know what actually happened, what's the backstory, where this all comes from. We have to know the history, the historical context, in order to be able to do our part to advance the cause of Israel. It's important. It always was important. It is of paramount importance today. It's critical. So jump over to the Jewish History Podcast and start or restart listening to the Jewish History Podcast episodes. Now on One of my other shows, This Jewish Life, just relatedly, I spoke to my dear friend, Blake Cohn. He spent a week in Israel. He went there to volunteer, but also to get a sense of what the people there are going through, what life is like in wartime Israel. It was the longest episode we ever recorded. Thank God he did most of the talking. The audio wasn't great. It's a story. But he told some riveting stories about what the pulse of the land is like. I highly recommend that you listen to that episode as well. And finally, a shout out to all those who chipped in to help Torch. As I mentioned last week, we only do one fundraiser a year in the first quarter. But in December, now it's the end of the year, we want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to share some of their blessings with us. And it's particularly helpful now. We hit a bit of a, a bit of a snag, a bit of a financial crunch. And I want to thank all those who reached out and went to our website, torchweb.org, and gave us a boost. We work round the clock to advance the cause of Torah, to connect Jews and Judaism, to spread the Almighty's word, to disseminate Torah worldwide. And when you support the great work of Torch, You are our partner in all that we do. And for that, we are eternally grateful. The website is, again, torchweb.org. You find the link in the description. And my email address is rabbiwalby 
at gmail.com. It's Parshas Vayeshev, and we are following the story of Joseph. Joseph, the son, the favorite son of Jacob, he will descend to Egypt, and our Parsha is the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy given to Abraham all the way back in chapter 15 of Genesis, the prophecy of the covenant between the parts, where Abraham is told that your nation, your descendants will be subjected to centuries of enslavement and oppression in a foreign land, and they'll be worked, and they'll be tormented, and then they'll leave with great wealth. Our parsha, we see the cascading series of events that will lead to this. There's going to be enmity between Joseph and his brothers, and they're going to want to kill him. Ultimately, they'll 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 sell him. He'll go down to Egypt. He'll be in prison there. Eventually, he's going to come out of prison, make a very powerful impression upon Pharaoh. He's going to be elevated to being viceroy of Egypt, and eventually, series of events will happen, and. Jacob and his sons will all descend down to Egypt, and they'll fulfill the, the dreams foretold in our parsha. and the nation will descend to Egypt and spend several hundred years there. But the first 11 verses of our parsha set up the events that are to follow, and it starts with the family of Jacob. Jacob seems like he's gotten past the tyrants, both Laban and Esau are in the rearview mirror, and he settles down in the land of Canaan, the land of his father. And then it starts talking about his children. And it focuses specifically on Joseph. Joseph was 17 years old, and he was a shepherd, and he was a little bit childlike, a little bit infantile, and his father loved him, and he was fa- he was the favorite of Jacob, and he made him a special tunic, and there is sibling rivalry. Joseph, we are told, Kabbalistically, he's the greatest of the brothers. He's the cream of the crop of this illustrious family. We're told, uh, Kabbalistically, that Joseph is the connective tissue between the forefathers, which are which is like the, the pantheon, the, the founding fathers of the nation, and the tribes. Rashi, in verse 1 of our parsha, tells us that Joseph is the flame that transmits Jacob's fire to a distance, and that will consume Esav's straw, Esav's flax. Joseph is special, and his father treats him as such. But of course, the brothers, they're not happy with that. And they begin to hate Joseph. And they can't speak positively about him. And then Joseph has a dream. And he conveys the dream to his brothers. And they hate him even more. This dream, the first of two, it spawned further hatred and further enmity. And Joseph conveys the dream to his brothers. What's the content of dream number one? We're bundling bundles. We're in the field. We're farmers. We're bundling bundles of grain, the crops. We're bunching them into bundles. And my bundle gets up and stands erect. And all of your bundles bow down before mine. And that implies, obviously, that Joseph is going to be superior to them and they're going to bow and prostrate themselves before him. And the brothers respond, they retort. And they say to him, are you going to rule over us? Are you going to be a king over us? And they hate him once more, even more, for his dreams and for his words. If you read the first eight verses of our parsha, 
Three times it says the brothers hate Joseph. Once in verse 4, he has the favoritism of Jacob and they hate him. And twice, uh, once in verse 5 and once in verse 8, over the dream of grandeur and supremacy, Joseph, you're better than us, that is a cause for further enmity. And then in verse 9, we read that Joseph has a second dream. And he tells it over to his brothers. And he says, behold, at a dream, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down before me. In this dream, the brothers do not respond. The first time they said, are you, are you going to rule over us? Are you going to be a king over us? There's no reaction. And then in verse 10, he tells it again to his father and to his brothers. So verse 9, he tells it to his brothers exclusively. Verse 10, he tells it to his father and his brothers. And his father castigates him. His father says, well, what is this dream that you dream? Can me and your mother and your brothers come bow before you? The sun is the father, the moon is the mother, and the eleven stars are your brothers? Well, your mother has passed. So obviously this dream cannot be true. And the session ends, verse 11, Vayikanu ba'echav, the brothers become envious of Joseph. Ve'aviv shamar sadavar, but the father, i.e. Jacob, he guarded it, he anticipated it, he did rebuke Joseph, but truthfully in his heart, he had a suspicion and he had an anticipation that this, in fact, would be true. So this is the beginning of our parsha. the two dreams of Joseph. At the end of the parsha, we'll have two more dreams, the butler and the baker. At the beginning of next week's parsha, we will have two more dreams, Pharaoh's two dreams that greatly unsettle him. But these are the two dreams of Joseph. And it's interesting, if you, if you study them carefully, you find a lot of questions. First of all, the dreams are kind of similar. They're both Joseph having a dream where he's told that he is supreme over his brothers. He's greater than them and they're bowing before him. And obviously we discover later on in the story that this actually happened. But wouldn't one dream suffice? Wouldn't one dream of, of Joseph being supreme over his brothers, ruling over them, them bowing before him, wouldn't that be enough? Why do we have two? And why does Joseph tell it to his brothers? They hate him, and he tells them the dream, and that just adds fuel to the fire. They hate him even more. And then he has a second dream, and after the first dream, the brothers tell him, are you going to rule over us? He has a second dream, and he makes the decision to tell his brothers, and they don't respond, and he tells it over again to his father and his brothers. So why is is Joseph so insistent on telling these dreams to his family, to his brothers? And that's, of course, very disturbing for them, distressing for them to hear that younger brother, baby Joe, is going to rule over us. Now, regarding the second dream, Rashi already addresses this. Rashi says that he told it initially to his brothers. Verse 9, they didn't respond. And then he told it over again to his father, Bifname, in front of them. And again, this is all mysterious. Why does it need to tell the second dream to them twice? Why does he, if he wants to tell it to his father, tell the father? But it seems like there's an emphasis that Joseph wanted to tell the dream over to his father in front of his brothers. 
Furthermore, after the first dream, the brothers respond. They are incredulous. Are you going to rule over us? Are you going to be a king over us? Will you dominate us? The brothers have a response to dream number one. Why don't the brothers respond with some substantive retort to dream number two? There's no response. Why not? And finally, if you analyze and study this narrative carefully, you'll see a subtle shift in the brother's sentiment from dream number one to dream number two. Again, the the, the major overarching theme of both dreams is the same, that Joseph will rule over them and they will bow before him. The first dream elicits a reaction, a reaction of hatred. They hated him even more for this dream. After the second dream, we don't see any added hatred. They are envious of him. If we read this exchange very carefully, with an eagle eye, we reveal all these interesting nuances. And if we just read it on a superficial level with just a you know cursory reading, we'll miss it all. Now, as you know, this is year eight of the Parsha podcast, and the theme of this year is dad, to go deep and deeper beneath the surface to the, not just the text, but the, the subtext of the Parsha. So maybe in previous years, we could say, you know what, these nuances and all these questions, we could just move past it, but not this year. We cannot subsist with a surface understanding. Let's go a bit deeper. And this is going to be courtesy of the Maharal. Dreams may have prophetic properties to them. If you look at all the dreams recounted in Genesis, I believe there are 11. All of them turn out to be prophetic. They turn out to foretell about the future. Interestingly, we don't think in this way, Rambam actually tells us that all prophecies, with the exception of of Moshe, with, with the exception of Mosaic prophecies, all prophecies are conveyed when the prophet is in a dreamlike state. So the fact that dreams could be a venue for for prophecy, that's well established. But of course, most dreams are nonsense. But in Genesis, if the Torah is going to tell us a dream, it's not going to be, you know, just some inconsequential, fantastic, imaginative dream. It's gonna it's gonna be real. And the Talmud even tells us that today, of course, we don't have any real prophets, but there's still a possibility for some degree of clairvoyant messaging, prophecy, light, that can be conveyed via dreams. Of course, the absolute overwhelming majority of dreams are baloney. It's malarkey. But some of them contain a kernel of truth. Yes, truth marbled with nonsense, but they can contain truth. And they can be a portent, they can be a harbinger, they can foretell the future. And Derech Hashem, as an aside, 
the wonderful work of Jewish philosophy by Ramchal. He has a whole section dedicated to the spiritual nature of dreams and what happens to the soul when someone's sleeping and why maybe a dream is a suitable state for prophecy. But there is a concept that a dream can be a state of being for prophecy. Even so, the Talmud delineates some criteria. There are some rules governing prophetic dreams. And again, most dreams, they're just nonsense. They're just simple things about during the day. That's what they will dream about at night, and they carry no prognosticative weight. It's not clairvoyant. It's not prophetic. But some dreams are. And those dreams, the Talmud tells us, there is a requirement, two requirements, for them to carry weight. Number one, it has to be a repeating dream. It can't just be a one and done. Number two, they have to be interpreted. The dream follows the interpretation. And therefore, if a dream is never interpreted, it's not like brought down, it's not summoned to this world, and it just goes back. The the prophecy returns to where it came from. With that background, says Maharal, that's how we understand the two dreams of Joseph. When Joseph has one dream, it's not an indicator of anything. And the brothers ridicule it. And they say, Will you become a king over us? Will you rule over us? Will you dominate us? But then he has a second dream. And they respond with stony silence. And Joseph is telling them the dreams because Joseph wants to actualize them. He wants to bring them down to this world. He wants to concretize them. He wants to ensure that they'll actually happen. So he's trying to elicit some sort of interpretation. And therefore he tells the dream to them again. And that way it will be substantiated. But the brothers, they don't want to do it. They know this is dream number two. And they don't want to fulfill the missing criterion to render dreams into being legitimized. They don't want to give it any more power. So they don't say a word. They don't interpret it. They don't even respond with ridicule. So Joseph repeats it in front of Jacob and in front of the brothers. And then Jacob offers his commentary. Havona vo, will me and your mother come to bow before you? Jacob responded. He interpreted the dream. Dream number one was now interpreted. Dream number two is now interpreted. And the brothers are present. Thus, says Maharal, Jacob is tacitly including the brothers in the interpretation of the dream. All the criteria for having dreams being legitimate prophetic portents have now been fulfilled. And the brothers, they respond with envy. When they thought it was just silly nonsense, dream number one, they hated him. Who is this kid? Who is this kid who thinks they can rule over us? What kind of nonsense is that? It's obviously not real. It's only one dream. It's not real. It just must be he's fantasizing about controlling us. So they hate him. But then he has a second dream, and they don't respond to it. And then Joseph outmaneuvers them 
and tells it to Jacob in front of them, and Jacob interprets it. Now it's substantial, and now they have reason to suspect that it will actually happen, and they are envious. That is how Maharal unpacks the beginning of our Parsha. It's obviously a very sophisticated and clever and nuanced read of this narrative, and it answers all of our questions. And it explains why the Torah spends so much time to the, all the nuances and all the different elements of this narrative. We, of course, have a word for that. That's, that's a deep reading of this part of the Parsha. But it's year eight of the Parsha podcast. We don't just go deeper, go deep and deeper. Because if you work out what Maral is saying, and you follow the storyline of Joseph and the brothers, you discover an incredible insight that the brothers understand. And I think this insight can be a, a fundamental paradigm shift for us. The brothers hate Joseph. Why do they hate Joseph? Well, the verse tells us because he's Jacob's favorite. And they think he's a good for nothing. And they actually considered, executed him because he's a criminal. And they ultimately settled to just sell him as a slave. The brothers hate Joseph. And he has a dream and it's just more grounds to hate him. And then he has a second dream and they get envious. But they still hate him. So wait a minute, how do we understand this? The brothers are envious because they think the dream is real. They suspect that Joseph will become a king. Why do they still hate him? Why are they envious of him? Maybe... If Joseph was not legitimately going to be a king, you could hate him. You could hate him for his sentiments of grandeur and supremacy. And you could say, well, the monarchy is supposed to go from, from, from Judah. And, and why does he think he's better than us? And why is he being so outlandish in his ambitions? But don't you think that after he has a second dream, which they now become envious of, they realize it might, it might be true. How come it doesn't diminish their hatred for him? After Joseph has the second dream and they think it's legitimate, they still sell him as a slave and they even consider to actually execute him. And they still belittle him and they say, oh, look, here's the dreamer who's coming. The brothers have a very low opinion of, of Joseph. And this dream or these dreams that they became envious of. So they know it's there's something there. It doesn't change their perspective. It doesn't make them appreciate him. Why doesn't the second dream, the, the dream that elicited envy, why doesn't that convince them that maybe Joseph truly is destined for greatness? Listen, they became envious. You're only envious of someone that has something. They became envious of Joseph because he has a future of being a king. 
Joseph seems to have a legitimate claim to being special. But it doesn't change the brother's perspective. If God determined that Joseph is supposed to be a king, that's a reason to be envious. That's a reason to hate him. If it's divinely ordained, you don't imagine that the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, that they would be envious and they would maintain their hatred. There's a very powerful idea here. This idea I heard courtesy of Rabbi Berkowitz. The brothers are telling us something very powerful. Yes, there is truth to Joseph's dream. He is destined to become a king. But they thought that he was not worthy of it. They thought that Joseph used an improper way to become king. They thought he's still a dreamer, he's still unserious, he's still worthy of having their enmity. Notwithstanding the prophecy that they legitimized, that they knew was legitimate and they were envious of, they thought that Joseph was undeserving. The brothers are telling us, this is their perspective. Again, it turns out they're wrong. They're saying, yes, there's a prophecy, but the prophecy is telling us how things will be, not how things ought to be. And the way things ought to be is that Joseph should not be a king. He is unworthy of being a king, and he was chosen nonetheless. The brothers are telling us that it's possible for a person who's not deserving of some level of greatness, who's not deserving of some promotion, who's not deserving of some heightened stature and distinction. They're not deserving of it. But there's a process by which someone could get that nonetheless. And that's what the brothers thought of Joseph's claim to the throne. Yes, they are resigned to the fact that Joseph will be elevated and will be promoted and will become a king. He had one dream, two dreams, and they were both interpreted and they became envious of him. But they still hate him. They still think he is unworthy. Their position is that it's not necessarily divinely ordained because Joseph is deserving. No, he's undeserving. And he gets it nonetheless. What the brothers are telling us that there's a process for a person to want something, to desire it, to aspire towards it, to push towards it, and to bend the will of heaven to their position and for them to get something that they're not deserving of. When someone really, really wants something and they set their mind to it and they obsess over it, they can persuade heaven to get that even if they're not deserving of it. The brothers did not see the heavenly determination that Joseph will be teamed. That's not a sign of approval. That's not a sign of righteousness or worthiness. It's just a sign that Joseph deployed his power of will to want something so badly that heaven says, okay, you'll get it, even though you're not deserving. That's how the brothers viewed Joseph the king. I think it's an amazing insight to the power of free will. There's an ancient Jewish axiom 
that nothing stands in the way of someone's will. If someone has such a determined will to do something, they aspire for something, and they just will it into existence, they will get even heaven to sign off on that, even if they're not worthy. Now, it's an amazing thing. The brothers are envious of Joseph, right? Envy is because they think he might be king. When they go down to Egypt to look for Joseph, Rashi tells us in Netri's Parsha, they went to the brothels. That's where they thought Joseph would be hanging out. And when they actually face-to-face with Joseph, and he's playing games with them, this whole cat-and-mouse game, they never consider that maybe this is their brother. The brothers never thought that Joseph actually had it. They thought, yes, he just wanted it, but he didn't deserve it. And this king who's in front of us is obviously so competent and has such a high level of aptitude and is has the whole Egyptian society around his pinky. There's no way that this is Joseph. They thought he would be a king, but an unworthy one. I think this is a paradigm shift because I think it, it changes our perspective of what free will is. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to quote the Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah says that free will is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. And it's one of the qualities that are actually assigned their own independent mitzvah. Now, we're not used to thinking of free will as a mitzvah. We think of ourselves as almost being passive in the free will arena. We have to make a choice. Do we choose this or that? And the, the tests or the options, the dilemmas, they come to us and we have to react. That's how we view free will. This notion that free will is a mitzvah, not, not to choose correctly, to have free will, that's a mitzvah. I think it fits into what this subtle idea that be, that's being conveyed here by the brothers, courtesy of, of the Maharal. It's a new definition of, of free will. It's something you have to work really hard to achieve. It's a quality you need to a- actively pursue, and doing it is a mitzvah. And what is this quality? It's to choose. To choose. To decide that you're going to get something. To aspire for something that maybe you're not even deserving of. To overshoot your abilities. And if you're obsessed to get what you don't deserve, and you're really obsessed about it, and you're determined about it, and you set your mind to it, you will get it. God respects someone who decides that they want something. And again, want is not strong enough. It's not wanting. It's not desiring. It is making a decision that come what may, I will turn over the entire world and I will get this. Such an attitude that will grant even the undeserving that that they want. They're deploying the power of free will and nothing stands before that. But most of us are not used to that kind of determination. When I used to saying, this is something that I will do, come what may. But this is a way that we can 
get even some, even something we're not deserving of. Again, the, the brothers, they're totally unmoved by Joseph's impending ascent to the monarchy. Again, you read it, it's clear. They hate him, they're envious of him because they know it's true, and they still think he deserves to be executed. Okay, we'll sell him. If you want to do great things, this is how you do it. You have to, you have to shoot for the stars if you want to be a star. We are partners with God. And the Almighty takes into account our perspective. And if we deploy our most powerful asset, and that's our will, and we determine that we want more, and we want a greater share of life. We want a larger slice of life. We want more responsibility. We won't be able to encroach on what was designated for someone else, even by a hair's breadth. But we can achieve things that we were not necessarily destined for. If you just have lofty ambitions, and you aspire for greatness, and you aspire for good things, the brothers, after all, they, they thought that Joseph was wrong to aspire for such greatness. And they still understood that such ambition can be consummated. Certainly, if we aspire for good things, things that are undeniably good things, and we have a dream, and we set our goals, and we make it an obsession, and we pursue it doggedly, and decide. That's the key. And decide that this is what we want. We will get it. Heaven will bend towards our will, even if we are undeserving, even if it is beyond our abilities, overshoot your abilities. You'll be surprised at what you can arrive at. I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. I think it's a subtle idea. I think it's an idea that, at least when I spoke this over with my friends, they said, no, it can't be that God wants dogged pursuit and obsession of a thing. He wants us to just take what comes at us. I, I think that's the paradigm shift. If you want something and you determine to do it, to have it, and you'll do whatever it takes, and you'll stay up nights, and you'll work the weekends, and you'll pray your heart out, and you'll invest all your energy, every ounce of your mind and your abilities, I think then you'll get it. You'll get what you want. This is one of those ideas that you know, how it fits into the story is very creative and clever. But it could be a real a real game changer in our lives. Most of us are not used to this type of hard work. We're not used to this type of obsession. We're not used to this idea of actually using our free will. It's a mitzvah. It's a hard thing to do. When we decide something, we make a decision. This is what I'm doing. It's a different ball game. Have a wonderful rest of your day. A fantastic Shabbos upcoming. We hope, of course, to only hear good news from our brethren in Israel. If you get a chance to listen to those other podcasts that I mentioned, please give them a listen. And you take care. Best regards. We'll talk again with the help of the Almighty next week.